A look back at technology's past in an effort to control its future. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Dylan Lewis, sitting in for Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Tim Byers. Tim, how's it going? Fully caffeinated, ready to go, Dylan. Let's hit it. Love it. Tim, sometimes when things happen on a Friday or over the weekend, it can take us a little while to get to it because the news machine starts right back up on Monday. And because I was having you on today, I wanted to rewind and talk about something that happened on Friday, uh, the passing of Gordon Moore. He was the co-founder of Intel, and his name sounds familiar to listeners because he is the Moore of Moore's Law. And Tim, I don't think it's a stretch to say he is kind of a singular character in the technology landscape. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And for those who don't know what Moore's Law is, Gordon Moore wrote this paper in 1965 in which he articulated a thesis that the density of a microchip, and at that time in 1965, what was considered a microchip then was pretty macro, but the components of a microchip, the the diode, the you know resistors, capacitors, and transistors, like the density of a chip would double, um, and effectively its compute power would double every year for the next 10 years. And then in 1975, he sort of expanded this definition to say roughly every two years. And I think in recent years, Moore's Law has been maybe stretched beyond its its usefulness because now we are manufacturing chips at the you know, five nanometer level, which is just you know, microscopic upon microscopic levels of and just incredible densities on a single die of of silicon. It's it it really is amazing. But for a long time, this really did govern the economics of what we came to know as as the computer industry. And and Gordon Moore was was a pioneer in this era. Um, and it it. I mean, certainly he's best known for Intel, but he goes back to some of the early days of Silicon Valley, which we can get into a little bit as well, Dylan. Yeah, I was going to say, Tim, there is no Silicon Valley without Gordon Moore. I think it's it's just the valley at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, it's orange groves in, in, <laughs> in, to some degree. I mean, it's not literally just orange groves, but in 1957, Moore is one of eight that are colloquially in history known as the Traitorous Eight who left Shockley Semiconductor Laboratories. William Shockley is the inventor of the transistor. And back at that time, um, that was such a breakthrough. And it came out of Bell Labs, where Shockley worked. He was well known as a brilliant scientist and recruited a bunch of PhDs, including Gordon Moore, to work for him in 1955 for Shockley you know, Semiconductor Labs. Within two years, you know, just the authoritarian nature of Shockley had just essentially turned these these eight, you know, brilliant scientists against him. And Moore is a chemist by training. He has his PhD out of out of Caltech, did postdoctorate work at Johns Hopkins. And they go off to form Fairchild Semiconductor and they form it out in Silicon Valley. What we now know is as Silicon Valley. Moore is out from that part of the country. He's he is from Northern California. And so within 
11 years of the forming of uh, of Fairchild Semiconductor. Moore and Bob Noyce go off to uh, co-found Intel, and the chip race is on. And I, I mean, really, the entire innovative culture of Silicon Valley, I think, can trace back to those early days of Fairchild, and then the spinoffs out of what we, you know, in those of us who follow technology history, we call Fairchildren, and Intel is one of those Fairchildren because of Noyce and more. But I mean, really, just that idea of meritorious achievement um, that goes back to like the Hewlett Packard days. Intel is part of that. This idea of meritocracy of like best idea wins. We are trying to build the future out here in Silicon Valley. And Gordon Moore is such a huge part of that, Dylan. I think that's one of the things that is is maybe most surprising if you're learning about him late is he's known so specifically for his technological foresight, but really he was transformational in the way that companies worked and the culture of companies, and also the way that management teams thought about capital and thought about their balance sheets. Right. And I mean, I think he continued some of the pioneering work of, of you know, Bill Hewlett and, and David Packard, you know, re- who really did start the idea of the garage startup in Silicon Valley. So, it's it you know i said orange groves originally it's really not fair to say that cuz hewlett packard goes back beyond that but there is a real blossoming of an innovative subculture that crops up out of the defense industry in northern california in the late 1960s and early 1970s and intel is a huge part of that but um more Kind of, he does something really interesting that continued through successors at, at Intel up through Andy Grove, who was famous as an Intel CEO who wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And the real basis of that is if you look at the data that we have, the publicly available data we have for 25 years, 1991 to 2015, Intel ran a surplus on its balance sheet, always had more cash than debt, always had a surplus of cash. Because the semiconductor industry for such a long time, Dylan, and just technology in general, ran in cycles. And there was really nothing more cyclical than the semiconductor industry. And so, Gordon Moore, as CEO, and then Andy Grove later on, were famously frugal, deliberate, disciplined in running Intel, not just as a monopoly, because let's be fair, it did grow up as a monopoly in the semiconductor, particularly the personal computing, you know, personal computing chips part of the business. They did build a natural monopoly, but they were also very disciplined about it and ran one of the strongest balance sheets in the history of Silicon Valley for a really long period of time. That's no longer true, sadly. I'm hoping that in the wake of Gordon Moore leaving this world, that we're going to recapture some of that discipline that really was a big part of Silicon Valley for a long period of time, Dylan. And I think we need it again. So, here's hoping that would be a great tribute to Gordon Moore, I think. 
Speaking of technology and discipline, Tim, our, our second story today switches gears a little bit from uh, the technology and the leaders that got us here to the technology of the future. And I wanted to talk about the story of tech leaders, including Elon Musk, researchers at DeepMind, academics from universities across the globe, asking for a pause in the training of AI systems that are more powerful than GPT-4. Uh, a note is making its way around the internet now. Uh, it's called Pause Giant AI Experiments and Open Letter. And Tim, it, it characterizes the current state of AI as an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. And this letter is really asking for discipline and a, a bit of a pause in this space that feels like it's kind of running away a little bit from, from its creators. Yeah. I am annoyed that I agree with Elon Musk. <laughs> I really am. I'm annoyed that I agree with him, but I fully agree with this because there's there I have some good faith disagreements with Musk in some of the ways he's running companies he's in control of. But on this point, I think he and his peers who have penned this letter have a point because there is a truism about exponential growth, Dylan, and this has been true in the technology industry for a very long period of time. When you introduce exponential growth, you also introduce the possibility of exponential errors that lead to catastrophic results. Anytime exponential growth is introduced into any system, unforeseen uh, outcomes can be a part of the process. So that's in nature that's in technology, that's really in anything. And so the caution here about let's be careful before we just get drunk on exponential growth, that is exactly right. Because what one of my fears with AI, Dylan, is we're going to think up new and more efficient ways to train AIs. And one of the most popular ways to think about this is, you know what? Let's train up AI machines to train our AI machines. And my catastrophizing anxious brain goes back to 2008 and 2009, Dylan, and the idea of bankers saying, you know what? These collateralized debt obligations where we're just going to throw a bunch of mortgages together and securitize them and just kind of throw them out there and say like, hey, let's just sell these things. We'll just throw the mortgages together and it'll be fine because we're reducing the risk because we're putting a lot of mortgages together. And they were like, yeah, you know what? That works, but let's up the game a little bit. Let's actually take those packages and package the packages and call them synthetic CDOs. And we know what kind of bomb that you know went off after that. Like that's that that is an example of exponential growth going horribly wrong. So I do think the idea of recognizing that exponential growth in and of itself is not inherently great is a pretty good take. I was going to say, Tim, I, I feel like a lot of AI anxiety really hinges on the black box element of things where yes. you simply don't know what's inside and things have kind of been abstracted away as you as you talked about in that parallel with uh, collateralized mortgages 
And, and the letter here is asking AI labs to develop safety protocols for AI design and development to set up auditing and oversight from independent experts. And the discipline side of it, the wanting to make sure we are innovating in a way that makes sense, all of that makes sense to me as an unsophisticated user of technology. But I guess my question is, how, how realistic is this? Because every big company is shoveling money into AI right now. And I feel like game theory is on the side of the arms race, not on this six-month pause to help figure things out. I think you're right. Sadly, I think you're right about that. I think the answer here is more humans in the process. Not fewer humans, more humans in, in the process. Like Where AI is potentially incredibly interesting is in making humans more productive, more thoughtful, asking better questions. An AI is really good at automating. It provides speed. Let, let, let's put it this way. What we have in terms of AI right now isn't actually all that intelligence. In fact, I'd call it dumb. There is no context, and AI can't give you context, and it only learns what you teach it. This is why exponential growth is a danger, because if you teach it bad things, it will just do more bad things at a higher rate of speed, creating more errors and maybe security issues and so forth. But if you put humans and AIs together, where a human being can step in and say, actually, that's not right. You need context here that I have and you don't. Like that is a very interesting way to govern AIs and put in guardrails that that makes some sense. But I do think you're right. There is this belief, and here's one of the dangers: is that if you have the largest trained data set, then you win, which makes that leads to the the arms race argument, Dylan. So you have a lot of people who are saying like, get me as much data as you can and feed this machine with as much data as possible. And the danger there and why this pause makes so much sense is, shouldn't we ask like what kind of data we want in the machine? Like that is important. We really need to ask that question. So this is why I, I agree with this, this framework of like, let's breathe. Let's ask what kind of data we really want in these machines and then make some decisions about how we get that data in and then how we monitor it to make sure that the quality of that data is actually good and we're not just introducing errors and bad faith ideas at exponential scale. Listeners, we will drop the link to the open letter into our show notes for today's episode. Until he's replaced by machine, Tim Byers, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Dylan. Listeners, the Motley Fool's stock market madness competition comes to a close right now. After fending off the competition, Nick Seipel and Tim Byers meet in the finals and compete for one shining moment. To kick off the finals of Stock March Madness, Nick Seipel, you have two minutes to recap your stock. 
Okay, yeah, happy to happy to, to jump in here. Uh, my company, if for folks not already familiar, is BWX Technologies. It's a leader in uh, nuclear technology, both on the defense side, also in commercial power, commercial nuclear power, and healthcare. Over three quarters of the revenue comes from the defense side of the business, where they've been a monopoly provider of reactors and fuels for U.S. nuclear propulsion submarines and um, and aircraft carriers for over 50 years. Also a leader in, in a cutting edge nuclear development for the government. Going to build the first micro reactor in the United States starting in 2024. Also, new opportunities abroad as the Australia US UK military partnership begins to roll out, where Australia is now going to be able to order up to five US nuclear subs over the next decade. Another 15% of the company's sales comes from the commercial nuclear power business, where they manufacture the can do nuclear fuel and components that power nuclear reactors across Canada. Also, um, have a partnership with GE Hitachi, actually, signed the, uh, the engineering agreement. Last week, uh, to provide the uh, the reactor pressure vessel for their BWRX 300 uh, small modular reactor. Also this week, the Canadian 2023 budget came out, includes a 15% tax credit for new nuclear, both small and large nuclear deployments, as well as nuclear uh, existing nuclear plant refurbishments. That's a business that BWXT operates in. Uh, so lots of tailwinds behind that business. And then lastly, they have a healthcare business that's been under development for the past five years. Now is about to reach commercialization here in the year 2023. Going to be able to. Provide most of the uh, of the nuclear isotope needs uh, for uh, healthcare applications across North America, and really opening up a new opportunity for the business. All that pulling all that together uh, with the capital needs coming down for the healthcare side of the business. Expect to see free cash flow increase 4x this year from 50 million dollars last year to 200 million dollars this year. Free cash flow inflecting higher tailwinds behind all sides of the business. Uh, it's a it's a company worth backing. Five minutes. Tim Byers has to recap his stock and offer a rebuttal. Monday.com is the low-code productivity software leader. And by low-code, what I mean is you program the environment you want, uh, but you don't have to write code to do it. Uh, it's very common to, to see this now. You might be using Airtable. Airtable is a low-code environment. So is Monday. And Monday happens to be an incredibly efficient business. But I'm going to start by talking about valuation, because a company like this Usually, you don't want to lead with that. Feels like leading with your chin, except in this case, it's not. Monday trades for about 11 times sales. And I want to focus on this only because I'd like to introduce something. Like when I do valuations around this, and I do valuations around these types of companies, if you're going to use the price to sales ratio, let me tell you how to use it in a productive way. You can't use it in isolation. If you're going to use it, the thing that's worked best for me is when the growth of the company is at least three times greater than the price to sales ratio and margins are going up and signs of free cash flow are already starting. All three of those things are present for Monday.com right now. So at an 11 times sales multiple, you should be expecting Monday to deliver at least 30%, really 33% or even 35% revenue growth. Over the last several quarters, 56.9%, 64.9%, 75.2%, 83.9% year-over-year revenue growth. That's what we've got in Monday.com. 
uh, while margins are going up. Operating margins now have come in under less than than 10%. Now, it's still negative, but it's trending up in the latest quarter. They turned free cash flow positive. This is a business that has a large and expanding ecosystem of partners that are betting on the platform, and they're doing more work on top of Monday.com. So, not only are you have clients that are doing a lot more work, the net revenue retention rate is over 120%. So, customers are spending 20% more every year on top of the product. So, I've done my own work on this. I think it's cheap compared to what the long-term growth opportunity is. I think it trades at a, at a pretty reasonable multiple. Last thing I'll say about this is you have a pretty reasonable compensation package for this particular company. All of the major executives make less than $300,000 a year. They do give out a fair amount of stock-based compensation. In 2022, $17.5 million. All of those options are well over $200 a share. They have huge incentives to lift this company, and they own collectively over 17% of the business. So, for me, Monday.com is an interesting business. It's a reasonably priced business when you consider its growth, and it has all six signs of a rule breaker. It's one I want to watch. Nick Seipel, three minutes for a rebuttal is yours if you want it. Sure. I think Tim lays out a good case for Monday.com, a really strong growth uh, from the business. I think just kind of comparing and contrasting these two these two businesses, you've got a monopoly um, and on the, the case of BWXC and a lot of the industries they operate in. Monday, clearly there's some advantage when you see lots of that growth, but they are not the only company that provides these services. Lots of growth happening, but you're seeing, along with that growth, losses continuing to expand. You've got stock-based compensation, 4x uh, uh, cash flow from operations. So, you know, you're you're certainly you need a lot more growth uh, uh, from Monday.com and uh, you know the 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 growth they've demonstrated in the past to start dropping to the bottom line uh, for the company to work. Certainly much less growth when you look at BWX Technologies, but I would argue much more insulated um, from competition just given that you're a monopoly player. Also, you know Tim talked about you know some of the rule breaker uh, frameworks. Um, I think another kind of rule breaker thought process we could we could throw out here is the snap test. I, I would argue that BWXD, if you snapped your fingers and the monopoly provider of nuclear propulsion systems for the U.S. Navy disappeared, the world would miss it very very quickly. And I think it would take a lot. To, the world would adjust much more quickly to the loss of of Monday.com. I think both great businesses, both with with strong prospects, but um, I would choose the monopoly with current free cash flow over the company that is growing very fast and certainly has has some edge over its competition but but is yet to show a, a you know a, a bottom line profit this segment originally aired on our member live stream members of any motley fool service can watch at live.fool.com members crown nick Seipel the champion with 60% of the votes but podcast listeners we want to know what you think too Write in to podcasts at fool.com with the moments that made the montage for you and ideas for future segments for the show. That does it for this episode of Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.